You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. China grudgingly loosens some COVID-19 restrictions, but is it, and are we, really prepared? A look inside Monocle's winter newspaper, Alpino, and we'll be speaking to Santa Claus. So there's that. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday and among the Monocle staff who failed to find themselves vital work assembling this weekend's Midori House Christmas market are Alexa Self and Brenda Tui. Plus, we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and we will start with China, which has this week begun answering the question of how much longer it intends to persist with its hardcore zero COVID policy. Following recent and unusual public protests, China's government has outlined significant loosening of restrictions, although given relatively low vaccine take-up and the debatable effectiveness of China's vaccine, this may yet end up causing more problems than it solves. Well, joining me now is Andrew Small, senior transatlantic fellow with the German Marshall Fund's Asia programme. Um, Andrew, first of all, is this something the CCP was planning to do or have they rather been nudged into it by the protests we've seen over recent weeks? This is certainly not something they were planning to do. And whether it's a nudge or um, kind of panicked response almost, um, this is not something they'd laid the groundwork for. We'd have seen, if they'd been planning to do that, the kind of propaganda machinery moving into gear in a very different way some some somewhere ahead of time but um, certainly a combination of the protests the hit to the economy the costs of running this extremely uh, elaborate version of how they proposed to do zero covid and I, I think real concerns growing about their position in global value chains this cumulative set of effects where, where the protests feel like they were the tipping point um, have forced them to act sooner than I think they would have wanted. Well, all that being the case, could this unleash yet further trouble? I, as I was just outlining, there are reasons to be somewhat trepidatious about what the virus might now do in China, especially amid what is already the biggest COVID surge China has reported. Well, the problem is they've taken stance uh, in, in the last couple of years of saying that zero COVID was proof that the Chinese Communist Party cared about the Chinese people more than Western liberal governments who were prepared to allow infection rates to rise and people to die. Uh, the conditions they're doing this in, I think there are projections of very significant increases in cases. We're already seeing that. Um, hospital capacity is weak, particularly intensive care uh, units. Um, and the predictions are that given, as you mentioned in your introduction, the take-up rate among vaccines among the elderly is, is, is weak and the vaccines are less effective. So the concern is obviously not only that you're going to see the consequences of, of this rippling out, there are projections of, of significant numbers of, of deaths as a result of, of, of this, um, but that it also undercuts the kind of validating narrative for the party and for the Chinese system as well. So this is by no means an easy way of manoeuvring themselves out of the, the, the situation they found themselves in. Nevertheless, global markets are up, uh, in some cases significantly, on the assumption that China is reopening. Is that optimism justified? 
Global markets have been totally volatile um, in their responses to the toing and froing of, of China's COVID policies, um, really leaping about in quite different directions. Now, we don't know, for instance, in, in this uh, instance, whether significant increases in caseloads are going to affect capacity in certain industries. We don't know how this is going to be managed politically. Um, so I think the, the, the market indications on this have, have been a pretty poor judge so far of, of, of whether this is actually judicious, even from an economic perspective, rather than them taking at least a little bit longer to, to lay the groundwork effectively um, to, be able to, to, to be able to move ahead with a reopening that can take place in a more measured way. I mean, as we were just discussing, the, the reasons why China is changing tack are mostly domestic political ones. Their responses to these recent protests which have clearly rattled the communist party significantly but how concerned will they be about the long-term economic difficulties that china may have stored up for itself i mean obviously china three years ago played an absolutely integral part in all sorts of global supply chains but people have adapted will china be worried that the world has actually moved on and left them behind I mean, they haven't fully moved on yet, but the pressures have obviously been building among international companies. Um, I mean, the, uh, the the consequences for uh, some of the really big investors in, in China, I think Apple is, is probably the best example for the iPhone production facilities. And, and what played out in, in Zhengzhou um, around this, I, I think, was the kind of poster child of, of the problems that um, investors had, had faced. And they have been um, trying to establish um, new production facilities in Vietnam and in India. Um, I think there's still going to be a very large Chinese market. So there's the producing China for China piece of things that isn't necessarily going to take a hit. But the sense that China is a reliable part of global value chains um, the last two to three years have really um, uh, shocked the, the, the image of, of China in, in, in that regard. Um, and this isn't just about zero COVID that, that has caused this loss of confidence. The sense is that zero COVID was itself a kind of embodiment of securitized, more ideological, more politicized decision making um, when it came to governance, when it came to the economy. Um, so the version and the way in which they're handling this again, actually looks like another kind of politicized version of, of, of the way they're even going about the, the, the reopening. So I'm, I'm not sure this is going to ensure that there's some great regaining of confidence in um, Xi Jinping and, and the party's capacity to make good judgments um, about how to uh, position itself in, um, in, in, in the global economy right now. Well, that right there is a, a partial answer to the, the final question I wanted to ask, which is even if, that if it does turn out that China can reopen to a large extent and it can manage uh, the health or the public health consequences of that, does it strike you that the Chinese Communist Party, for those ideological reasons, might actually be quite keen to keep some of these restrictions in place regardless? I mean, the problem is... It, I think the sense on the party side had been, and the, and the sense for many observers was, that zero COVID was as much about societal and political control as it really was about health strategy. Um, I think it was understandable for a, for a period of time the way China approached it, but the decision not to go ahead with the use of foreign mRNA vaccines, the decision to keep these measures in place for so long, it seemed like the party had decided 
um, or Xi Jinping had decided that this was um, that this was a part of overall political strategy. Now, what they've understood, I think, perhaps as a result of this, is that it's one thing moving in a more totalitarian direction um, when it comes to repression on the margins, but when you're um, when you're restricting the freedoms of so many people for such a sustained period of time, um, and when you're positioning yourself as a leader, as responsible for all of this, um, it's liable to, to, to bite you. Um, and um, I think there's going to be some real stock taking as well um, in, in the party about um, whether they're getting their political strategy right on this and whether leaning so hard in the way that they that they have in this um, level of societal control is actually going to be more costly than giving a little bit of breathing room. And in some respects, this reopening in, in the rather panicked manner that we're, we're seeing is indicative of the fact that at least in the short term, they've calculated that tactically that's advisable. And um, in the medium term, um, I think it will also be seen as proof um, for, for those in the system who think that you know, China's still vulnerable, the party is still vulnerable, um, the young people are still willing to go out on the street and protest relatively quickly and, and point to the top leadership as, 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 as to blame. So I think they'll be a little nervous about what this portends. Andrew Small, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to the Monocle Daily and it is time now on the show for some cross-promotional advertising thinly disguised as heartwarming editorial content, which at this point in December you should be used to. For many subjects of the animal kingdom, Kingdom, December means hibernation, the process undergone by some wild creatures to survive the cold and dark and scarcity of food, and indeed by some humans to avoid the office party and the in-laws. Animals including, but not limited to, bats, butterflies, frogs and other amphibians all hibernate when the temperature drops, and to prepare for this they eat as much as they can and find a safe spot to rest in until spring. But is this the same as sleeping, and why don't humans do it, despite the aforelisted incentives. And what is it exactly that this segment is trying to sell you? Here to reveal all is Monocle's foreign editor, Alexis Self. Um, Lex, we, we have not pivoted to wildlife coverage as such, although I for one would frankly be all aboard for that. What we are doing here, is it not, is flogging Monocle's winter newspaper. I'm no expert on wildlife, but I am an expert on sleep and hibernation. <laughs> so that's why I'm here. Uh, Monocle's winter newspaper, which goes on sale on Monday, but which is available to purchase if you are coming to Monocle's Christmas market tomorrow at Midori House, is full of wintry delights. I, I believe the Christmas market is also open here at Midori House on Sunday. I believe that to be the case. That is also the case. <laughs> and there will also be among many other things, uh, copies of the winter newspaper to purchase. This year's winter newspaper, it's really fun putting something like this together in which the focus is completely winter and mm. winter-adjacent things. So at the front we have a big feature from the far north of the United States of America, from Alaska, from the US Army's most northerly base in Alaska, where the Arctic Angels are based. A reporter went up there and did some cold weather training, although it actually wasn't classed as cold weather training because it was only minus 8 degrees Celsius. Ah, and that's nothing. Hat, hat and a scarf and you'll be fine. Exactly. As as you know, that's not really cold weather, is it, Andrew? No, it's not. I've, I've, I've done colder on Monocle's behalf. I, I did do a story for the Winter newspaper some years ago, which involved going up a mountain with the French Army's mountain warfare unit, but we didn't do actual full-blown sleeping in holes dug out of ice or anything nonsensical like that. The grand old Duke of York was exactly. there. Um, so one of the stories is our US editor... 
Chris Lord encountered a bear in the woods. Mm -hmm. I I can't confirm whether or not the bear was (laughs) (laughs) excreting, but but he was so scared that he turned on his heel and ran away. This was in North Carolina. So I commissioned Chris to write a piece about what to do when you encounter a bear in the woods. Is the answer scream and run away? Well, as it happens, Chris came up against a black bear and black bear's diet mostly consists of berries. Mm-hmm. And unless you're a berry, you you should Chris is not. You should be fine. Um, of course, grizzly bears are, are a whole different proposition. Um, well, in, indeed, the, the, the trouble is, though, you, you have a fairly narrow window of time in which to decide whether or not that is a black bear or a grizzly. Unless, and, and I would not consider myself an ursine expert sufficient to make that judgment under pressure. Yeah, I think generally running away, <laughs> most things in life works as, a, as in it's the a, immediate... It's an, it's, a, it's an answer to, to many, many <laughs> things. It's the problem. But, but hibernation to go back to your initial question, is another thing that I have an interest in. And um, there's, a, there's a beautiful piece next to the one on uh, what to do when you encounter a bear in the woods by Cal Flynn, who's, who's a wonderful nature writer, on why animals hibernate, uh, what hibernation is, and, and whether or not we can learn anything from it as humans. And I would say that to go back to bears, um, bears, when they, they spend around seven months of the year in their dens, and, and when they do, they won't leave. They, they, they don't leave to eat or urinate or defecate in the woods or outside of them. <laughs> and instead, they recycle the waste within their bodies and, and the urea is broken down and the nitrogen uh, that would constitute the waste is used to actually build protein. And, and as a result, bears lose about a third of their body weight and may actually increase in lean muscle mass without ever leaving their beds, which I think you'll agree is aspirational. So I don't understand from that whether you're better off confronting one of them before they hibernate or after. I think if you are in a bear's den or you've 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 gotten that you, far... You've made a series of bad choices yeah. already, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, it's and probably a bit late. Darwinism at work, perhaps. Uh, uh, indeed. So all of this and more, Lex, can be read once again in which fine journal? That's the winter newspaper or Monocle's Alpino newspaper available to purchase from all good newsstands and kiosks on Monday or or at the Monocle Christmas Market, which runs tomorrow and Sunday at Midori House in right Marlebone. Indeed it does. Uh, Alexa Self, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. It is time now for our regular letter from New York City. And here is our correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan. Anyone who's used the New York subway will have heard this message. Don't assume it was left by accident. If you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. The announcement was introduced after 9-11 to encourage vigilance among subway riders. The man who formulated it, Alan Kay, died on November 27th, age 77. His brainchild is considered to be one of the most effective pieces of public messaging ever, and with good reason. Following its rollout, the number of suspicious package reports in New York increased from 814 in 2002 to over 37,000 in 2003. 
A big part of what makes the phrase work is how unobtrusive and colloquial it is. It's difficult to appreciate how good the locution is until you compare it to some of the alternatives that were considered before being rejected. One was, if you see a package without a person, don't keep it to yourself, which is almost meaningless. Another was, be suspicious of things that look suspicious. Aside from being inelegant, it's direct instruction that people should be suspicious just feels negative. If you see something, say something, credits people with being able to figure out for themselves the best course of action in any given situation while also keeping them alert. For me, the terminology of public messaging is one of the most underrated aspects of public policy. A pithy slogan that conveys important information with style is a rare and wonderful thing. Unfortunately, I'm limited to English language examples, but out of these, my favourite is from the London Underground. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Mind the Gap is both charming and brutally effective. Its charm comes from its idiomatic deployment of mind as an adjective to mean pay attention to. This is a peculiarly British usage that's faded in American English. It's perhaps less universally comprehensible than the phrase more widely used on the US transit systems, watch the gap, but it has way more character. And the value people seem to place on the character of what is meant to be a purely functional public message is surprising. Despite the dominance of American English worldwide, Mind the Gap has been used as an English language instruction on more public transit systems around the world than the US alternative. If you see something, say something has enjoyed similarly widespread adoption across the world. Somewhat counterintuitively, a well-wrought vernacular phrase seems to do better overseas than more neutral formulations. There's something that really appeals to me about the idea of solving public policy challenges with the right choice of words, but there are some urban problems you can't talk your way out of. In New York City, rat sightings are up 67% from 2019. Now the city is looking to hire a full-time director of rodent mitigation. The job ad tries to be light-hearted, listing a swashbuckling attitude, crafty humour and general aura of banassery under the job qualifications. But make no mistake, the job is about killing. Killing thousands and thousands and thousands of rats. I find it humbling that despite our technological achievements, humans still face some of the exact same problems our ancestors have had for hundreds of thousands of years. I wish whoever takes on the role the best of luck, but I personally would find it hard to stay motivated. Lying awake in bed in the wee hours of the morning, can even the most effective anti-rat official truly believe the rats won't outlast us in NYC? Only time will tell. 
That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan, with his in-house string quartet. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, at the turn of the 20th century, a dramatic story unfolded in western Alaska. The Sami, the indigenous people of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and the Kola Peninsula of Russia, were brought to Alaska to teach reindeer husbandry to the Inuit. The Sami survived storms at sea, starvation on mountain passes, and thousand-mile trips by sled through blizzards. Now they are being immortalised by Sami printmaker Thomas Kolbengtsen and Swedish painter Stina Folkebrandt in an exhibition. Migration, featuring prints and paintings, is making its North American debut today at the National Nordic Museum in Seattle, where the Sami stopped en route to Alaska and from where we are joined by reporter Gregory Scruggs. Um, Gregory, first of all, the artists, how did they come to this theme? Why are they so invested in it? Good afternoon, Andrew. I, I spent some time with both artists yesterday uh, at a press preview. And for Thomas, who himself is Sami, he actually met a descendant of this bizarre episode in transatlantic relations, uh, an Inuit uh, Alaskan with Sami heritage, uh, because there was some intermarrying by the Sami who settled in Alaska, who moved back to uh, northern Sweden, to his home in Lapland about 20 years ago. He met this woman and, and slowly learned more about this episode that's not very well known in Swedish history. And, and then for her part, the Swedish artist Stina Folkebrandt, she uh, learned of it in a documentary that was only quite recently uh, making the rounds uh, in Swedish media and was, was just captivated by this story because there is a long history of Nordic migration to North America at that time, but it's often... It's much more common, the story of, of Nor- Norwegian, Swedes, and Finns going to logging and fishing camps and the like, and very little attention has been paid to this truly uh, intrepid journey by the Sami reindeer herders with their reindeer from Scandinavia across the ocean and then across the continental U.S., and then by boat up to Alaska. I mean, it is, as you say, an absolutely extraordinary story. It is an epic, and it is kind of amazing that it has not been the subject of well-known thousand-page novels and six-hour films. But is the story widely understood, if not in Sweden? Is it widely appreciated in Alaska and the, the Pacific Northwest of the United States, the contribution the Sami made? I get the impression it's not a very well-known episode, which is, I think, part of the interest in hosting this exhibit uh, that the two artists are are bringing to North America for the first time. It's been the subject of some very small exhibits at sort of uh, regional Swedish Nordic heritage museums, you know, quite small potatoes, if you will, nothing at this scale. And and also to be clear, this is not as strictly an archival show, although there there is some archival work. The curators did dig up some period photography of the reindeer uh, uh, grazing away at a park in Seattle in 1898, uh, as well as diary entries written by some of the Laplanders and, and even the report that uh, the U.S. agent in charge of this whole enterprise delivered to Congress. Um, but it's predominantly an artistic show. And uh, the printmaker... Uh, Kolbingsen and and the art and the painter Folkebrand, they're less interested in in the specific timeline and more in what this episode says about uh, the way in which the Sami people have been treated and sometimes mistreated in their native Scandinavia and uh, and also uh, just shedding some light on the the really almost mythical cosmology of the reindeer to Laplanders for 
Forstina Folkebrot, the painter, who is Swedish but not Sami, she was just mesmerized by the, the idea that the Sami actually conceive of the year as having eight seasons and that each of those seasons is determined by where and how the reindeer are acting. And, and as Kolpingsen told me last night, without the reindeer, there are no Sami. I mean, they're simply part and parcel. So how did the two artists go about rendering this extraordinary tale uh, in, I guess, single-shot glimpses of visual arts? What have, Are there particular themes they've narrowed in on? Yeah, so for Kolbingsen, it's a story of identity as a, a Sami person. And he dug up archival photographs of several of the Sami uh, who made this journey, uh, some you know, in Western dress, some in Laplander dress, some in Inuit dress, uh, uh, perhaps those who had intermarried, and then rendered them, uh, screen printed them on some polychrome, and then Im- Im- imbued them, or rather sort of overlaid Sami language on the imagery. So he really felt that the, you know, given the history of the language being repressed in Scandinavia, as well as native Alaskan languages also being repressed as sort of this part of this assimilation goal that that indeed this reindeer husbandry effort was a part of, he felt it was important to resurrect some of that identity through both imagery and language. And then for, for Stina Folkebrandt, the painter, she relied primarily on uh, films and photographs as well as a little bit of real-life observation to try to capture the, the sort of ma- majesty of, of the reindeer and its kind of dynamic way that it moves through the landscape on these very large prints. Uh, they're not canvases. They're more sort of paper prints that she painted on that then wrap around the room. So you're essentially immersed in a, in a 360-degree reindeer speckled landscape while the these sort of ethereal colorful images of these sami people printed on the uh polychrome rotate around you in the middle of the room it's it's quite magical gregory scruggs thank you for joining us the migration exhibition is at the national nordic museum in seattle until march 2023 so plenty of time well a reasonable amount of time uh, you are listening to the daily on monocle 24 and finally on today's show if you are in london this weekend come to monocle's christmas market here at midori house and that is very much an instruction not a suggestion we will be making a list of absentees there will be myriad myriad i tell you attractions not the least of which are my next two guests, Monocle's front of house director, Brenda Tui, and Santa Claus. Um, Santa, first of all, can you hear us okay? Yes, I, have, I, I can hear you okay, and loud and clear. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, are you able to say at which part of your journey uh, from Finland to Midori House you were at? Now, that's kind of a secret at the moment, but uh, <laughs> I, I can tell you about something about uh, the crispy weather in England. Okay, well, you can tell us about the crispy weather in England. That is a hint. Um, we will therefore just assume you are speaking to us uh, from your sleigh phone, which may account for the intermittent signal there. Um, can, 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 can you give us any idea what you will be bringing uh, to the Midori House Christmas market other than festive cheer? I can talk with people because I, I love to speak with people there. I, I meet so lovely people in, in, in that market every year. So I'm, I'm really waiting for that. Because we do have to emphasize, do we not, that you are the actual proper official Santa Claus, uh, not to be confused with any lesser pretenders to the title. 
they're not pretenders and they're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> uh, I, I don't mind if you, somebody wants to look like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we think of them as tribute acts uh, in particular. I mean, we're very grateful that you're making time for us at what is obviously a very busy uh, part of the year for you. But w- what kind of stage are your preparations at uh, around December 9th for the epic journey you have to make uh, circa December 24th? Uh, the most important for me at the moment is to, to meet people in Rovaniemi at the Arctic Circle in Finnish Lapland. Uh, and the elves have been doing everything else. Uh, they, they have been working hard. They are very clever. They are very hardworking. So they are doing the most of the job. Uh, Santa Claus, thank you for the moment. We will come back to you. Uh, Brenda here in the studio. Um, here at Midori House, I have been able to see um, the preparations underway. Uh, where are they at? Well, the Monocle Elves have been working very, <laughs> very hard here at Midori House to get everything exactly right for Santa's arrival, and not only for Santa's arrival, but for our many subscribers and friends who we hope to welcome here to the Christmas market at Midori House tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. We have lots of cool stall holders. Um, there are treats for dogs. There's gin for adults. Um, there are candies for children. Uh, we, we should emphasise as well for some of our later rising uh, listeners, you don't actually have to be here on the dot at 10 o'clock. Uh, it, it basically goes all day, doesn't it? It carries on until 6pm this year. We have extended it, yes. I mean, if it is any enticement to anybody, I will be here at about half past nine tomorrow morning because I have to interview Santa Claus again <gasps> in person, uh, Santa Claus, for our special Finland-themed edition Christmas edition of the Foreign Desk, uh, which we are making and which does contain just extraordinary things, uh, even by our standards. But um, can you talk specifically, Brenda, a bit about some of the attractions that await? I can, absolutely. We're very excited to welcome this year Art School, which is brought to us by Lane Kay. She has put together uh, a series of original prints and limited editions by all British-based mm-hmm. artists. So that's very exciting. I think they run at about 500 and under, which is accessible to, to many people. Um, we welcome back our favorite Canadian lavender farmer, Nancy from Wales. Mm-hmm. And she has marvelous products, uh, lots of creams and ointments, all made out of her organic lavender that she farms herself. Uh, We have uh, newcomer Kintails, and they're going to be working with Yoko. So Kintails has uh, created um, a number of dog accessories, uh, Mm -hmm. and Yoko is coming alongside them working at the stall with uh, dog treats. Okay. So that's exciting. We also have uh, Cairo, a Finnish gin brand. Now, they're not only bringing their bottles of gin, they're going to prepare some Christmassy cocktails for us to try too. So that might be more of an afternoon activity. <laughs> I'm not sure, Andrew. I don't know when you like to start. I, I, um, I think this is a time of year in which people, for a variety of reasons, prefer to start early. Are there going to be this year actual live reindeer there have in previous years? Santa always travels with his reindeer, Fantastic. and this year won't be any different. So we will have the reindeer out in the courtyard, uh, ready for all to see. Yes. Um, and on that note, I will come back to you just finally, Santa Claus. I mean, do, do you have to do much preparation of the reindeer building up for this time of year? Because obviously you are asking rather a lot of them. Uh, it's it's only uh, the shiny nose. I have to polish it. 
<laughs> That's the only one. But Andrew, did I hear that you said you have to interview me? <laughs> I, I, I should probably have phrased it more graciously. It's I, I don't feel it's a, an onerous obligation, Santa Claus. It's just that, you know, it's... Uh, as the staff here will wearily confirmed, I don't usually get on terribly well with mornings. So, like having to get up and <laughs> getting up and making conversation at that hour, it's 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 tricky for me. But we'll manage. I am looking forward to it very much. Uh, and just another final thought, Santa Claus. I did want to ask for a lot of people. This will be their first really proper unrestricted post-pandemic Christmas. Are you therefore going to be a little bit more forgiving than usual on the whole naughty versus nice thing? People have been quite quite nice almost all the time, and that's okay for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm not checking so carefully about the naughty list at the moment. That's good to hear. Santa Claus, thank you very much for joining us. I will see you tomorrow in person. Uh, Brenda, I will see you tomorrow you in will. person as well. Do you want to go ahead and remind people one more time where and when the Monocle Christmas Market is happening? The Monocle Christmas Market is happening here in Marlebone at Monocle HQ, Midoriya House, Dorset Street. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. I shall see you tomorrow, Brenda, and hopefully I shall see, well, not everybody who's listening to this. That would possibly make things a little unwieldy, but a decent percentage <laughs> of people who are listening to this would be nice. Uh, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Andrew Small, Alexis Self, Gregory Scruggs, Brenda Toohey and Santa Claus. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb. Our sound engineers were Tamsin Howard and Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and see you this weekend. 